Mark chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to your word right now. And God, we just, uh, we confess that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces, gets digs down into us, Lord. We just agree that that's your word. And God, we also confess that there's times where we're hardened to your word, to the truth of it. And I just ask you, God, to help with that today, that you would, you would break down, God, all hardness of heart towards your words. God, I just ask you for a, a real understanding of the truth, God, and a real just seeing your glory and your word. God, I just ask you for that today, that we would worship you during this time. God, be worshiped during this time. Please allow me, as you commanded me, God, to preach your word and the ability that you supply. Help me to do that, Lord. And I just praise you, God, for the for the time to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, Mark chapter 6. So we're in Mark. We've been, we've been uh, most of you know this, just teaching through Mark right now. I'll be loud. <laughs> All right, Mark chapter 6. We're in uh, verse 1 through 6. So just read along with me, okay? Mark 6, 1 through 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters... Here with us, so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Mark 6, 1 through 6. All right. I kind of want to say this at the beginning here. I know that you, know, you get a group together like this, there's different people that, uh, that are here in the Word of God right now. Okay, there's different people. You've got uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, people here that are saved, genuinely, born again. You're in Christ Jesus, and you have eternal life with Him secured. And I know there's some people usually here every week, just a few people, they just openly say they don't believe these things. They openly deny Christ. And then there's also, I know there's people here that have, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, more of a kind of an undercover unbelief. Uh, an unbelief that we say we believe with our words, but the reality is you've never been born again. You don't really trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to set that out there. This is, I know that when we have a group together like this, this is who we're talking about. So I want to encourage every single person here, hear the word of God today. Hear Mark 6, 1 through 6, wherever you're at, as we walk through this passage. Now, I want to talk to you just as an introduction. This is on your sheet. You see on your sheet it says, unbelief and abomination to God. I want to talk to you about that just as an introduction into this passage. Okay, as an introduction in, 
God hates unbelief. And that's what I want to come at you with at the very beginning. Okay, there's only two places in the scripture where it says Jesus marvels or Jesus is astonished. And that's what we see in this passage, Mark chapter six, right? We see the people of Nazareth, his hometown, and we see they are walking in unbelief. They are unbelieving and Jesus marvels. Well, the other place is in Matthew eight. And if you remember that in Matthew eight, you have a Roman uh, centurion that believes on the Lord Jesus that he's gonna that he could heal just by a word heal his servant and Jesus marvels at this man's great faith so you've got Jesus marveling shocked and all over this great faith and then you have the opposite here in Mark 6 where Jesus is marveling he is shocked <clears throat> over their unbelief showing us that unbelief is an abomination to God Jesus hates unbelief now let's start off let's define unbelief and faith they're opposites right Unbelief and faith. Let's start off and just kind of give a quick definition. Let's define what we're talking about here. And sometimes it helps to get a definition if you talk about what faith is not. Okay, what unbelief, faith, what is it not? Let's start off with that. It is not, faith is not just knowing the truth. It's not just knowledge of the truth or knowing that he exists. We see that in our passage, right? Mark 6, 1 through 6, it says right there that they were unbelieving but did they know, did they have knowledge about things about Jesus? Did they know he exists? Yes, but they're still unbelieving. So it's not just knowing truth. And it's also not just agreeing with Jesus' teaching. These people in this passage are astonished with Jesus' teaching. And yet they're called unbelieving. So belief or faith is not just agreeing with his teaching. It's also, and this is more in our culture, it's not just a feeling of everything's going to be okay. Faith is not, well, it's just going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. It's just kind of vague. There's no real object, no real reason why. It's just going to be okay. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith, Hebrews 11.1 1, says faith. Listen to this, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance, or some of your versions say confidence. Faith is assurance, confidence of things hoped for. It's a conviction of things not seen. Do you hear how internal that is? It's not just external out here. It's not just agreeing to something. But faith is this internal thing. It's inside of you. It's assurance. It's confidence in Christ. Now, this confidence has a very specific. It's not vague. It's not objectless. It has an object. It's confidence in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Other helpful words is faith equals trust in Jesus. You can see that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The word trust is used right alongside faith and belief there, okay? So trusting Jesus is what we're talking about. Faith equals reliance upon Jesus. You rely on Him. So then unbelief, unbelief, you can know facts about Him and still be unbelieving. You can like His teaching and still be unbelieving. Unbelief is to not trust. Think of the internal stuff here. What's going on in your insides? It's to trust. He's to not trust Jesus. To not have confidence in Jesus. To not rely upon Jesus or not to hope in Him. Okay, let me give you a little game that I play with my kids sometimes to help illustrate this, okay? We play the trust game with my kids. And what you do, I don't know if you ever played, I'll explain it quickly. Is you get your, I have my little daughter, Keely, she's standing in front of me. And she has to keep her feet together. And she has to look that way. She has to look away from me. I'm behind her. Keep her feet together. She has to put her arms out by her side. And she can't look back. And I whisper in her ear, trust me, baby, I'll catch you. And she just has to fall back. 
and let me catch her. Now, if at any point she buckles her knees, what does that mean? She buckles her knees, she didn't trust me, she tried to catch herself. Or if she tries to look back, she's, she's trying to catch herself. She, she doesn't trust me. Now, does she know I'm back there? Yeah, she's got knowledge that I'm back there. She knows I'm back there. And she knows that I have the power to catch her because she's seen me catch her brother hundreds of times. But will she trust me? Will she rely on me and fall back? Trust. It's an illustration of faith. So think about faith here. Now, so with this intact, this faith, unbelief, we kind of got an idea of what we're talking about. I want to talk to you about the wickedness of unbelief. The wickedness of unbelief, okay? Normally, we think of unbelief as a very small stature. It's a very small thing. We, you may not even consider it as sin. You may call it a struggle. We're just struggling with unbelief. Or just call it an opinion. You're just kind of open-minded and so you have an opinion and you're unbelieving in some way. But I'm here to tell you that unbelief is sin. It is a very wicked sin. Listen to Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren. He's going to tell you to beware of this unbelief. Beware. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Evil. Unbelief is not just a struggle. Unbelief in Christ is not just an opinion and being open-minded. Unbelief is a sin against God that is not to be taken lightly. If you are floundering around in unbelief as it concerns the gospel, I'm not supposed to come to you and commend you for being open-minded. It is a wicked sin. It's a heinous crime. Unbelief. There is no more fatal sin than unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think about the consequences of these people we just read about in Mark 6. Think about the consequences of their unbelief. They'll spend eternity in hell. Eternity in hell. There's no more fatal sin than gospel unbelief. Charles Spurgeon, he, uh, he preached a sermon called The Sin of Unbelief. And in that sermon... He called, he called unbelief Satan's firstborn child. It's a hideous creature. Terrible destruction for everyone who's gripped by unbelief. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Listen. And you tell me, do you think of unbelief in the same way? Listen to it. Is it not the very summit of arrogance and extremity of pride for a son of Adam to say, even in his heart, God, I doubt that grace. God, I doubt that love. God, I doubt that power. Oh, sirs, believe me. Could you roll all sins into one mass? Could you, could you take murder, blasphemy, lust, adultery, and fornication, and everything that is vile, and unite them into one vast globe of black corruption? They would not equal even then the sin of unbelief. Do you feel this strongly against unbelief that it is this wicked, this sinful, as Charles Spurgeon does? Or even better, Hebrews 3.12 says, a wicked heart of unbelief. Do you see it as evil? And if not, why not? Unbelief is an evil sin. Now, Jesus saw, I want you one more little point here. Jesus saw many, many different kinds of sinners, right? He saw an adulteress caught in the act. He saw arrogant Pharisees. He saw greedy tax collectors and prostitutes. He saw these things and none of these things made him marvel. And yet he stands here in the presence of people who have had so much revelation of the truth just given to them and they're unbelieving and Jesus is shocked. He's marveling. Unbelief is a wicked sin. Now quickly, there are various forms of unbelief. 
You've got the form of unbelief that is very open. It's very open. Everybody knows about it. It'd be like an atheist. Somebody that says that they try to say that God does not exist. Or they say there's another God, maybe a false God that they preach, a different God, not the God of the Bible. These are very open unbelief. Okay, it's very open. It's out in the open. But there's also a hidden and secret unbelief that comes, it comes, it shows itself as an angel of light, but it's still unbelief. It says with its mouth, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in their heart, they do not believe on Christ. They're still headed toward hell. And sometimes these are harder to pick out, but you need to know that unbelief has many different forms. Spurgeon said in that sermon, unbelief has more phases than the moon and more colors than the chameleon. I feel like I want to say this real quick. You know, sometimes it can show itself. Let me say this. Unbelief, maybe somebody here needs to hear this. Unbelief sometimes can, be, can show itself as a Christian virtue. Did you know that? It can show itself as humility. It can be dressed up in clothes of humility, but it's not humility at all. That kind of unbelief says things like this. They say, God would never pardon me, such a wicked sinner, for my sin. You don't know how wicked I am. And that's what this unbelief says. Now, that sounds real honorable, right? God would never pardon me. It sounds real humble. But I'm telling you, that is a hidden, wicked sin of unbelief. It says that the God who said, whoever comes to me, I'll give him rest. It says that that God's a liar. It's unbelief. Okay, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. Now, here's what I want to do. We've got this understanding. Okay, it's intact. The severity of unbelief. You get it, right? The severity of unbelief is there. Now let's take this passage phrase by phrase, verse 1 through 6. And I want to pull out two things. Two things. Jesus is amazing because this scripture, like all scriptures, exalt Jesus. And Jesus is amazed because he gets so he sees these people. They're so close to him. And yet they still are unbelieving. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazed. Let's walk through it. Let's start with the context around this verse. Context. If you remember what we've just gone through, okay? This last section that we just preached through, through Mark, it's Mark 4, 35, all the way to the end of chapter 5, okay? That section is a section where Jesus is exalted through miracles, four miracles to be exact, but he's exalted through miracles. And if you think about it, those miracles are meant to produce in you faith. They're meant to produce faith in you. Think about it. Jesus calms a hurricane-like storm with a word. You better trust him. Right? Or, or Jesus dominates the demonic realm by casting demons out of a man. Trust him. Trust him. Or Jesus heals a woman that no doctor could heal. Or Jesus takes a little girl, 12 years old, and raises her from the dead. You should most definitely trust the Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to build faith into you. And then you get here to this section, and he, and he collides. Jesus and his disciples collide head on with a group of people that know about him, and yet they're unbelieving. And Jesus comes against it. He condemns it. Now, verse 1. As we look at his wicked hearts for unbelief, look at, look at verse 1 with me. Let's read it again. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. Okay, it says Jesus went out from there. Where did he go out from? And he's speaking about Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so Jesus went out from Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Caper this place that Jesus is leaving in verse 1 is a place where Jesus did many, many, many of his miracles. 
most of his ministry was based here. He was all over that region and Capernaum was like a, a home base for him. And he's leaving right here. And this is actually a very sad departure. This is actually a very sad departure, not necessarily for Jesus, but it is a sad departure for the people of Capernaum. And what makes it sad is that these people, although they had miracle after miracle after miracle done in their midst, and they heard preaching his message over and over again in their midst, they still rejected the message. They were still unbelieving in Capernaum. And Jesus leaving in verse 1 is as if Jesus is shaking the dust off his sandals and he's leaving never to return. Now, Jesus does return to Capernaum a few times. You keep reading through Mark, but this is no longer his home base. You see him going all over the place and he's no longer camping out at Capernaum. This is like shaking his shaking the dust off his feet and leaving Capernaum. This is a sad departure. OK, in fact, let me read this to you. Matthew chapter 11. You're welcome to flip with me if you like, but hold your place in Mark. Matthew chapter 11. Listen to this with me. 11 verse 20. 11 verse 20 says this. Then he began, this is Jesus. He, Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus begins to rebuke these places. They had had so much revelation of Christ and yet they did not repent. Look at verse 23. He's going to point out Capernaum where Jesus just left in Mark 6. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So what's, what's he saying here? Jesus is looking at this place where he left. And this is a sad departure in Mark 6. Why? These people did not turn. And Jesus, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. He said, if the works that were done in you were done in Sodom, they would have repented and you didn't. And so what Jesus is doing here is Jesus comes down very hard, very hard on those who have had so much truth exposed to them over and over again. And yet they remain unbelieving. Does this strike a chord of warning in your soul? As you turn and apply this to yourself, would this strike a chord of warning in your soul? You say, why would this be a warning for me? Because these people Capernaum saw Jesus, the truth of Christ, put in front of them over and over again, and you live in a similar area. The truth is all over this place that you live in. You're familiar with church. You're familiar with Jesus' stories in the Bible. You're familiar with these things. And yet if you reject it over and over again, Jesus comes down hard on this. He said it would have been better. He said Sodom. If Sodom would have received what you have, Sodom would have continued on. Here's how John MacArthur says it. He says, in hell, it would have been better for you to be a homosexual pervert living in Sodom than to be a synagogue attending self-righteous Jew living in Capernaum. Could it be that you've had so much revelation of the truth like those at Capernaum and yet you remain unbelieving still? Could it be? Now in verse 1 it says, Then he came to his own country. You see that? Some of your versions say he came to his hometown. That word there is, uh, is the Greek word literally means his fatherland. It's the land of his father. So Jesus leaves Capernaum and he goes to Nazareth. Okay. Now I want you to think with me. i, I got to figure out a way to go through this fast. About his time in Nazareth. I want you to think about Jesus' 30 years 
first 30 years of his life in Nazareth. Luke 4, 16 says he grew up there. This is where he was brought up in Nazareth. If you read the first couple of chapters of Matthew, first couple of chapters of Mark, you remember Jesus through miraculous circumstance was born in Bethlehem. After being born in Bethlehem, his parents and the child Jesus fled by the leading of God. They fled to Egypt for a time and went because Herod was trying to kill Jesus. And when he got there, they were led by God, eventually led by God back to Nazareth, this town in Galilee. We even have a story in Luke chapter two of Jesus being 12 years old. Can you picture it? What would it have been like for Jesus to grow up in this small town, Nazareth? He's 12 years old in Luke chapter two. It says he grew up there. Uh, the, I want you to try to think about this. I'm trying to think how to come through this quickly, okay? Nazareth, okay, you have, a, you have a town you were born into. Think of Jesus growing up in your town, okay? Now, Nazareth, he grew up in Nazareth. What would the people have thought about him? What would they, what would they have thought about the miraculous events around his birth? You know, born of a virgin, angels singing, because this one is born as king. What would they have thought about all that? If they believed, they thought it was miraculous, right? Now, if they were unbelieving, they would have thought this is scandalous. These are lies to cover up the fact that Mary's pregnant and she's not married. You see what I'm saying? What would it have been like for Jesus to grow up in Nazareth? What about from boyhood to manhood? Would the events of his life been extraordinary and even strange in some way? Of course it would, right? Because you got Jesus to think about it. The perfect sinless, righteous one grows up among you. This is extraordinary. And this would have been even strange at times. His, his perfect righteousness would have given him favor at times, right? Like when he was 12 years old and he knew so much and the religious leaders are going, how does this boy know so much, right? How, how did, where did he get this wisdom from? And then sometimes, don't you think his perfect righteousness would have collided with the sinful people of Nazareth like you and me? And it would have collided big time. And there would have been jealousy and anger and wrath toward Jesus, don't you think? And surely there's things that Jesus would have said to these people as he grew up from boyhood to manhood that would have seemed very strange. Think about Jesus' wisdom. His, his Isaiah 55, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. He would have said things that nobody understood. They would have even seemed strange. Let me give you an example of that. In Luke 2.49, Luke 2.49, Jesus' parents... They take him to Jerusalem. They leave. They accidentally leave Jesus there. They hurry back into Jerusalem, probably frantic, trying to find Jesus. They finally find him after three days. And what does Jesus say? Tell me this doesn't sound strange. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And then it says, but they did not understand they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. This would have been a very strange thing. Think about Jesus growing up in that. This was his hometown that he's going back to in Mark chapter 6. Now, Jesus in Nazareth would eventually become a carpenter there. Chapter 6, verse 3 in Mark says, is this not the carpenter? Matthew 13, 55 says, is this not the carpenter's son? He became a carpenter like his daddy. This word carpenter in the Greek, it literally means a worker with wood, a worker of wood, a builder, a craftsman. This was his trade in a small town like Nazareth. Everybody would have known him as the carpenter, just like they call him here. That's the carpenter, Jesus. He was there till he was 30 years old. Now, let's just take a side note and say, how awesome is that? Christ Jesus. This, this shows you his humanity. All this does. 
But, but the fact that he was a carpenter, the humanity of Jesus, was he fully God? Yes, he was God for all of eternity. And he was not a man. And then one day in the incarnation, he becomes a man. And now what a good picture of that in the carpenter. Christ Jesus takes on humanity and he never loses it. He's still fully God, fully man right now as I'm speaking to you. That's Christ Jesus. The builder of the whole universe becomes a builder in Nazareth. The one who measured the oceans in the hollow of his hand is now a worker with his hands, a blue collar worker in Nazareth. The creator of heaven and earth became the carpenter of Nazareth. This is awesome. So here's Jesus in Nazareth. Okay, he's been there for 30 years. So think with me. He's been there for 30 years. He knows everybody there. Everybody knows him. And then he does something radical. Jesus does something absolutely radical. He leaves and he goes to that wild man in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And he goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. And then the people in Nazareth in his hometown, they begin to hear that when he got baptized, the sky ripped open and a voice came out of the heavens from God and said, that's my son. Can you imagine hearing this? You're in his hometown. You hear this kind of stuff. Then he goes on. He's doing radical things. He becomes a rabbi. He has his own disciples, although he never went under any formal training to be a rabbi. He begins to do miraculous things beyond explanation. And then get this. Here's the kicker. He claims to be the son of God. He claims to be the Christ. And think of the people in his hometown hearing this stuff. People start flocking around him from all over the place. Some people hate him. Some love him. He ticks off about every religious leader of the time. And he begins to travel all over Israel. And he's preaching. He's healing. He's casting out demons. Can you imagine being back in Nazareth? And you hear about these things and the people in Nazareth didn't know what to do with him. Jesus actually had a first, this, what we're reading in Mark 6 is Jesus going back to Nazareth. But he actually had a previous visit to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And it didn't go well. If you read Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes back. He gets to the synagogue, reads from Isaiah 61, a messianic prophecy. And he says, that's been fulfilled in your hearing today. And the people doubt him and he rebukes them and they try to push him off a cliff. They don't like him. We even know that his brothers thought he was crazy. If you read Mark 3, 21, his brothers said that they thought he was out of his mind and they tried to come get him. So in Nazareth, they don't know what to do with Jesus. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, we see Jesus going back there and he's taking his disciples with him. He's taking his disciples. Okay, go to verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Verse 2 on your sheet, I titled it, the people of Nazareth were astonished at his teaching and his mighty works. So let me ask you this. Did you know that it's possible to be astonished at Jesus's teaching and yet still be unbelieving like these people? Did you know that it was possible to be astonished at the mighty works of Jesus and yet still be unbelieving like these people? This verse says that they were astonished at his teaching. And I say, of course, of course, they were astonished at his teaching. He's the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. He had authority 
in his words, when he spoke, he had such authority that the multitudes trembled. He gripped their attention of the multitudes because of his authority. He spoke with gracious words that melted hearts. He spoke with unexplainable wisdom. And if you think, I want you to think about this. You think you know somebody that preaches or teaches with power and authority. Let me tell you something about Jesus, his authority and his words. Listen to John 5, 28. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. They're going to hear the preaching of Jesus. And what kind of authority does he have? They're going to hear his voice and come forth. His preaching is so powerful. His teaching is so astonishing that he's going to preach one day and dead people, billions of dead people in graves all over the earth are going to come flying out of the grave to the judgment. That's power and authority in your words. And yet these people are still unbelieving. They're still unbelieving. They know that, but they're unbelieving. Even the message that Jesus brought was the glorious gospel. It was the main message he brought. Mark 1.14 says that when he came into Galilee, it says he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus came preaching not bad news, but good news. And yet they were unbelieving still. He preached the good news that, that the eternal son of God had come in the flesh. And he stands in between wicked mankind and holy God. He stands in between them as a mediator and all of our sins laid on him. And therefore, all the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus instead of us. And he's preaching this glorious message that he has come. There's one God. First Timothy 2, 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. And he's preaching it and still these people are unbelieving. What about you? Have you heard much of Jesus' teaching? Over and over again, you've heard sermons. Are you still unbelieving when you really get down to the heart? Do you have the hidden unbelief? Does your life show, does the lifestyle that you live show that you are believing or unbelieving? Now, this verse, verse 2, it also says they were astonished at His mighty works. And I say, of course, they were astonished at his mighty words. One whisper from Jesus is more powerful than synchronized screams of seven billion people on this earth. One whisper. He's powerful beyond what you can ever imagine. Of course, they're they're astonished. His power is limitless. The power of Jesus is limitless. Listen to Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold. You made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too difficult for you. There's nothing too difficult for Jesus. His power is limitless. His power is beyond our ability to understand. It's the reason why the disciples stood there and said, who can this be? He commands winds and waters and they obey him. And if you read Mark 6, 5, just skip ahead with me for a second. Look at verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. How powerful is Jesus? He's so powerful that his unmighty works means people get healed. That's awesome. He he heals people and say, that's not even his mighty works. So so for, for example, for example, imagine you're a woman that's been sick for 12 years and nobody can heal you. Or you're a daddy with a 12-year-old girl who's on the, she's at the door of death. She's about to die. 
And then Jesus comes in and he heals your sickness. And he raises the dead girl from, from the dead. She, he, he just raises her up. And then an angel comes alongside you and said, you ain't say nothing yet. You ain't say nothing yet. In fact, the angel says this. He says, these are the mere edges of his ways. How small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? What does it look like when Jesus restrains his power? People get healed. He's powerful. Now the people in Nazareth, think about this, the people in Nazareth, they knew his teaching and they were astonished. They knew his mighty works. They tasted his power and his authority and yet they were still unbelieving. Apply this to yourself. Can you apply this to yourself? Where is your heart? Do you know facts about Jesus and that calms your soul? Well, it shouldn't. Only faith in Christ. Are you believing or are you unbelieving, untrusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Go to verse 3. Verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Now I entitled that verse, Faithless Familiarity. Because they were very familiar with him, right? They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. They knew his mama. They knew where he worked. Very familiar with Jesus. And yet they were faithless. They had the truth. The truth. The living truth. Walking in front of them for 30 years. They heard teaching from the truth. The teaching of truth from the truth. And they saw miraculous signs and wonders that confirmed the truth. And yet they remained unbelieving instead of bowing down in humble belief to King Jesus. Never had any place on this earth had the privileges that Nazareth had. Ne never. For 30 years, the Son of God, the Savior, walked among them. No one ever had the privileges that Nazareth had. And yet it says they were offended. They were offended. Now, to apply this to yourself, to apply this to us, let me use a guy named J.C. Ryle. 1800s in England. And he makes an application of faithless familiarity with Jesus. He makes an application of this particular verse. And I think it could be very applicable to us as well. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle says, There is nothing in all this that needs to surprise us. The same thing is going around, going on around us every day in our own land. The Holy Scriptures, the preaching of the gospel, the public ordinances of religion, the abundant means of grace that England enjoys and continually undervalued by English people. They are so accustomed to them that they do not know their privileges. It is a dreadful truth that in religion, more than in anything else, familiarity, familiarity, like they were in Nazareth like we are here. Familiarity breeds contempt. Let me give you a warning. The people that had the most exposure to Jesus were not the people that believed on him and followed him and were saved. This should strike a chord of warning in you. You live in the Bible Belt. This should strike a chord of warning in your soul. Let me give you a little phrase that I think is helpful. I didn't make up this phrase. But I just want to present it to you. Spiritual inoculation. Spiritual inoculation. That's my phrase I want to give to you. Inoculation is like, it's kind of like, you can look it up, it's kind of like vaccines almost. It's like you get just enough of the thing that you don't actually get the thing. 
like a vaccine, you get just enough of it that you actually don't get the sickness, right? Spiritual inoculation is what's spread abroad in this culture, that people have just enough of Jesus, just enough familiarity with Jesus that they feel okay, but they are still headed toward hell. Unbelief. Go with me to verse 4. Verse 4. This is Jesus' response. Now, here's these people, scornful unbelief. And here's how Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. Now, this is Jesus' response. Okay? And there's some things I want you to see here. This is kind of like, the, uh, there's a, a modern day phrase. It's a little less popular, but you may have heard it. Modern day phrase says, experts always come from out of town. You ever heard that? Couldn't be here. They always come from out of town, right? You're an expert if you come from out of town. But this is what this is saying here. It says, a prophet, this is like a little, a little proverb. A prophet's not without honor, except in his own country, among his own people, his own house, his own relatives. Now, let me give you two lessons from this. Lesson number one you want to get from this response is Jesus is the prophet. He is most definitely the prophet. He openly refers to himself as a prophet in this verse. So Jesus is the prophet. In fact, Jesus is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. You go read Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 17. They spoke of a prophet that was coming that was going to be like Moses. A prophet that was going to come. And just like Moses stood in between God and the people, Jesus is going to come. And he did come. And he stands as the mediator between God, holy God, and sinful man. And he's the only way someone can be saved. He is this prophet. Now think with me for a minute. What is a prophet? A prophet is a mouthpiece of God, right? Somebody that speaks on behalf of God, thus says the Lord. Okay, that's a prophet, a mouthpiece of God. Think about it. When sin invaded the earth, knowledge of God was slain. Our minds can't contain who God is and we're skewed about who he is and we're skewed about his will. So God begins to send prophet after prophet after prophet all through history, all through the Old Testament. And then here comes Jesus and he is the ultimate prophet. All those prophets, you know what they did? They spoke a word from God. Jesus is the word. John 1, 1 says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh. They spoke a word from God. He is the word of God. They spoke truth. Those prophets of old, they spoke truth from God. Jesus is the truth. He said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus is the prophet. He's the Christ. He makes no secret of it. And that brings us to our next point. These people in Nazareth, they were the most exposed to the prophet. They had the most, they had the most uh, exposure to the truth. They had the living truth in front of them. They had the most exposure to the word. And yet they're unbelieving still. They're still unbelieving. They would not believe him. They hardened their hearts and they refused to put their trust, put their confidence in Christ. And I'll say it again. This is strike a warning, a warning in every one of our souls. Those nearest to him, his hometown rejected him. Those closest to the flame did not feel the heat. Those closest to the storm did not feel the wind. They didn't feel it. They didn't get it. Those that had the front row seat, they had the front row seat to hear the ultimate prophet. And yet they were unbelieving. 
They were spiritually deaf. They could not hear. Now, let me say it again. Test yourself. The Bible says this. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Are you really in the faith? If this is possible, these people of Nazareth, unbelieving, are you really in the faith? Test yourself. Don't play around with this. This is not a game to play around with. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Does your life show that? And if you don't, I'm pleading with you. If you question, I'm pleading with you. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest in Him. The one that took your sin onto Himself. He died for you. He laid down His life for you. He took the wrath of God in your place. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 and 6. Now, He could do no mighty work there except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Now I entitled this one, Miracle Stopping God Shocking Unbelief. Okay? Unbelief is a serious offense and it slanders. Listen to me. Unbelief slanders the faithfulness of God. Unbelief says, he's not faithful, I can't believe his word. Unbelief slanders the goodness and the power of God. When you have unbelief toward the gospel and you're lost, you are doing the work of Satan who slanders God continually. He is the slanderer. In verse 5, we see that unbelief is so serious that it actually squelches miraculous work of Jesus in your life. It actually, it actually puts out that flame. Now, it's not that, it's not that Jesus needs your faith to do miraculous things. He doesn't do that. But he's not about entertaining faithless people. Okay? Verse 6, we see that unbelief, unbelief in the light of such abundant revelation, like they had in Nazareth, like me and you have, living where we live, is a God-shocking sin. Jesus marvels over this sin. Now, I want you to understand one more time. What did it mean for the people of Nazareth to be unbelieving? What did it mean for them to be unbelieving? Did they believe Jesus existed? Yes, of course, he's right there. They saw him. Did they believe Jesus taught well? Yes, they were astonished at his teaching. Did they believe Jesus did a miraculous works, mighty works? Did they believe that? Absolutely. They actually saw it firsthand. But did they believe Jesus? And the answer is no. They did not believe Him. They didn't trust in Him. Their confidence was not in Him. They did not rely upon the Savior. Like a daddy playing the trust game. They knew He was back there. Okay? They, knew, they knew His power. They knew things about Him. He taught the game. Daddy taught the game well. He gave good instructions. And yet they would not fall back. They buckled their knees. They're un. Believing. So what about you? Do you have real faith in Jesus? Think about these people in Nazareth. Some of them turned. Jesus' brothers that are in Nazareth, they later on followed Jesus. They called themselves a slave of Jesus. Their own brother. But many of these people continued on in their unbelief. They had all this exposure. And one day there will be eternity, or even now, eternity in hell right now, having grew up with the Savior. What about you? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know that, you're, that Christ is in you unless you've been disqualified? Are you in Christ or are you not? Now, the last phrase of Mark 6, verse 6 says this. Just 
understand what I'm saying here. Verse chapter six, verse six says this. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Then Jesus went about a circuit into the villages teaching. So let me give you a question. How did Jesus respond to this God shocking sin of unbelief? How did he respond? He left. Jesus left. He went and taught somewhere else. He left. And this, this is a terrifying thing. That sometimes Jesus simply leaves and it's game over. You hear it no more. This truth that you're hearing right now, you hear it no more. And you try to turn back one day and it's too late. Your heart's too hard never to be softened again. He left. Listen to Proverbs 29.1. Just listen to this. He who is often rebuked. Zone in with me here. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Did you understand that? Let me give it to you in the ESV. Listen to this. He who is often reproved. Has that happened with you? Have you been pricked over and over again in your conscience about the things of Jesus and what he done? Has that happened to you over and over again? He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck. Maybe you have ignored the pricking of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you served him for a short time and then fell away. Have you had that? You just stiffen your neck over and over again. Listen to this in the ESV. It says they will suddenly be broken beyond healing. This is terrifying. Unable to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your heart is too hard. Game over. This is strike terror in your soul. Don't wait. The Gadarenes, remember them? The Gadarenes saw Jesus cast out legions of demons, and yet they asked Jesus to leave. You know what he did? He left. Gone. The people in Capernaum, many, many miracles. They had ample opportunity to turn to Jesus, and yet they lost their opportunity. And he left. And we see the same thing here with Nazareth. They leave. They leave. So I, I just... I want to plead with every single person here. If you're unbelieving, whatever it might be, if you're blatant unbelief atheist, or if you're that secret unbelief, and you know I'm talking to you right now, I want to plead with you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't sit this way. You grew up in a culture that makes you feel okay about nominal Christianity. And so you just go to the grave and you still feel okay because you've heard church things that make you feel okay, but you're not okay. You've got that secret unbelief, and I encourage you, I, I don't encourage you, I plead with you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There's nothing more important than this. Everything that you got in front of you, whatever it may be, stress, sin, it's all a deception. It's a lie to keep you from Christ. Please turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came, He died for you. Don't linger in your unbelief. You don't want to have this day of opportunity and you look back and it's gone. Listen to Leonard Ravenhill. If there are a million roads in the hell, there is not one road out. And if they continually sing in heaven, worthy is the lamb. So in hell, the only thing they sing is the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are still not saved. So I say it again. Christ Jesus laid down his life for you. He took the wrath of every sin. Every sin in this room, every single sin in this room laid on Christ. Think about it. Think about it. It wasn't just a cross, a Roman 
cross with physical pain. It was excruciating, but it wasn't just that. The sin, your sin laid on him. The shame of it, the guilt of it, he takes it on to himself. Every single sin in this room, past, present, future, takes it on to himself. And all the hell that's supposed to be poured out on you for eternity, he took it instead. If you're hardened to that, I, pl I plead with God for mercy. Plead with him for mercy to soften your heart. Now, let me turn the corner quickly. Okay. And you flip that page up. I'm turning the corner. You're turning the page. The believers battle with unbelief. We'll talk about this quickly, okay? I want to speak to everyone here who are believers, okay? You're a believer here. You're, you have a battle with unbelief. I want you to think about this. Imagine you're the disciples. Okay, Jesus has experienced this in Nazareth. And you're one of his disciples, right? You're one of the twelve. And you're his disciple. Now, you've just seen Jesus stop a storm with a word. And then he looks at you and says, why are you so fearful? Why do you have no faith? Why are you unbelieving, he says. You think that would have challenged you, challenged you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? To, to put your faith in him? You, you think that would have encouraged you to trust him? Think it would have challenged you? Or... Or, as he keeps walking, he dominates demons, he heals a sick lady and raises a girl from the dead. Do you think this would have challenged you to believe Jesus, to trust him? And then he takes you, and verse 1 says this, Mark 6, 1 says, his disciples went with him. He takes you to Nazareth, and he lets you face, he, he lets you see just unbelief in its finest. Unbelief, and he condemns it right in front of you. He's shocked at this unbelief, marveling. If this unbelief, do you think this would have challenged you to believe Jesus as a believer, as a disciple? Yes, of course it would, right? So I want to talk to you believers about unbelief, okay? Now, so this is what I mean. I'm not talking to lost people like those in Nazareth that are headed toward hell. I'm talking to saved people who are in Christ Jesus, and yet you're still in this battle of faith, okay? Did you know, let me ask a question. Did you know that faith grows? Did you know faith grows? And the fight for faith is an ongoing battle for the Christian. Did you know that? Now that's the positive way to say it. Let me say it the negative way. Did you know that Christians, believers, can still walk in unbelief? And that the battle against unbelief is an ongoing battle for the Christian. Did you know that? Let me give some scriptural proof on these thoughts, okay? Here's scriptural proof that faith grows. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says, Your faith grows exceedingly. Luke 17, 5. The disciples say, Jesus, increase our faith. It increases. Faith grows. Faith increases. It's not just a, you're unbelieving and you're believing and it's just a one-time thing. You're 100%. Okay, it's a growing thing. Your faith grows. Let me give some scriptural proof that a Christian must wage war against unbelief. You're a Christian here. You have got to wage war against unbelief. Listen to Hebrews 3, 12 again. Listen to it more carefully this time. Beware, brethren. Speaking to believers, Christians, beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. John Calvin said it like this. Christians are in perpetual conflict with their unbelief. Now, I'm going to say a massive statement right now. Here's a big statement. And I want to make it. Maybe you already know this, but if you don't, and if you do, listen to me. Listen to this big statement here. Unbelief is at the root of all sin. Unbelief is at the root, the foundation of all sin. Think about it. 
What is the oldest sin in the world? Unbelief. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, Satan comes to the woman and she says, has, has God indeed said? And she ca he cast that little bit of doubt in her mind. And her unbelief, this unbelief, the oldest sin in the world, unbelief is at the root of all sin. There are many more famous sins, maybe murder, or sexual morality, whatever it is. But unbelief is at the very root, it's at the heart of every single sin. And usually, usually it goes under the radar for most Christians. And so you never get to the root of problem, the root of the problem when you're dealing with your sin. Unbelief is at the root of fear. Unbelief is at the root of anxiety, depression, rage. Unbelief is at the root of sexual morality, pride. Unbelief is at the root of all sin. Sinning is the fruit of the problem. Unbelief is the root of the problem. Martin Luther said unbelief. Martin Luther said unbelief. The root, sap, and chief power of all sin. Spurgeon called unbelief the parent of all iniquity. The parent of all wickedness. Listen to this from Charles Spurgeon. Everything that is evil and vile lies couched in one word, unbelief. John Piper says all sins come from unbelief in the promises of God. And Jesus clearly portrays to us all that unbelief and faith are the foundations in John chapter 6, verses 28-29. People come to Jesus and they say this, they say, Jesus, what must we do that we might work the mighty works of God? What must we do? Excuse me, that we may work the works of God. What can we do to work the works of God? You know what Jesus says to him? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and be sent. Now, what's he saying? Is he saying that feeding the poor is not a work of God? Or that preaching the gospel is not a work of God? That's not what he's saying. But he's saying at the very root of it all, at the very foundation of it all, is faith. Faith and unbelief go hand in hand. And at the very bottom of sin is unbelief. Therefore... I want you to know this. It's good for you to know in your warfare. The world, the flesh, and the devil are waging an all-out war against you, Christian. And their bullseye is to, is to destroy, diminish, weaken your faith. That's their bullseye. Now, why am I stressing this so much that unbelief is at the root of sin? I'm stressing it so much because I want you to fight the fight of faith. I want you to know how to deal with your sin at its very root. Now, you might have this attitude. Many have this attitude. Uh, belief or unbelief is just an easy thing. Right? It's like it just happens. It's either there or it's not there. What do you do? Belief or unbelief. And I want to tell you that that's wrong. You must. Faith and unbelief is the battleground. That is the battleground for you, Christian. And if you fight hard at this battleground of against unbelief and for faith, you will destroy many, many sins. Many things will line up. But if you ignore Fighting against unbelief, you will never get to the root of your sin. So I'm here to tell you, make war on unbelief. Let me give you a scriptural example real quick. Matthew chapter 6, you can flip there. Matthew chapter 6. Now we're not going to read this whole thing, but verse 25 through 34, those 9 or 10 verses. I want you to know that what he's talking about in these verses is worry or sin. He says the word worry or, or, or anxious five times in this verse. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry. Verse 27, what's your view about worrying? Verse 28, why do you worry? 
31, therefore do not worry. 34, do not worry. Do you see that? Worry, worry. He's talking about the sin of worry and anxiety right here. And what gets to the very heart of it? What's at the very bottom of your worry and your anxiety? Look at verse 30. The last phrase in verse 30 says, O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Now, doesn't it make sense? That if you really believe, Christian, you fight for faith. If you really believe God is who he says he is in this Bible, would you really be anxious? So it's a fight for faith. Would you really be worried if you believe that? So ultimately, the fight against worry and anxiety ultimately is a fight against unbelief. It's a fight to have faith in God according to what he says in his word. All right, let me give you another quick example. Sexual morality. Sexual morality is a sin, right? And at the very root of it is unbelief. Why? Because when you're doing things sexually immoral, porn, looking at porn, or fornication, or lustful thoughts, whatever it might be, as you walk in those things, you really believe that that pleasure is better than Jesus. You really believe that. So what's the battle? At the very heart of it, that Christ Jesus, the battle against sexual morality, at the very bottom layer is to believe that Christ that in him is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And to really believe what God says about the sin of sexual immorality. It will destroy you. And it's an abomination to God. What about pride? Anybody dealing with pride? Okay, when you have this sin of pride, what's at the very bottom? It's unbelief. You, if you really believe what God said about you in his word, here's what you would hear. Job 25, 6. How much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? Wow. At the heart of your pride is unbelief. Do you really believe what the Bible says about yourself in that regard? Or if you walk in pride, you're really not believing what God said about himself. Listen to Job, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. If you're dealing with depression, same thing. You must fight to believe that Jesus is who he said that he is in this word. To fight depression. That's what the fight is in depression and all the sins that are around it. Okay. You must believe the, the blessings, the myriad of blessings that Christ has poured out on you through the cross. You must believe it. And when you believe it, you kill your depression. And this is a daily battle, by the way, Christian. This is a daily battle every day. This is not a one-time event. A daily battle to fight. We must learn how to do Ephesians 6, where it says put on the armor. And it says take up the shield of faith, by which you may, you may be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil. We must learn how to pick up the shield of faith. Fighting sin is not just a bunch of no-nos and boundaries. You must get down deep in the heart and change the way you believe your faith and kill your unbelief. Now, that being said, so then how do you do it? So how do you fight? If this is at the very heart of your battle, your fight for faith, is a fight against unbelief, then how do you do it? How do you kill unbelief and resurrect faith? How do you kill unbelief and build and grow in faith? How do you do that? And I'm going to give you three means through which that happens. Let me give you three. Three means through which that happens. The Word of God. I'm going to put these together. Prayer and fasting. I'm not sneaking one in. They just belong together. Okay? The Word of God. 
prayer and fasting, and the third one is the church. Means through which unbelief is killed, faith is resurrected. Why do I say the word of God? Because Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You fight unbelief for the word of God. Why do I say prayer and fasting? Remember Matthew 17, verse 19 through 21? In that passage, you've got these men, trying, these disciples trying to cast out a demon. They can't do it. Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief. Unbelief. And then Jesus says, these kind only come out by, and you think he's going to say faith, and he says prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting affects your belief or unbelief, your faith or unbelief. So the word, prayer and fasting, and then church. Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 13. I want you to think about it. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Remember, we've been talking about that verse. Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Within verse 13 says, but exhorting one another. Exhorting one another keeps us from being hardened in our sin. You see that? So the, the he tells you, beware of unbelief, and then he tells us, exhort one another. So it's through the church, through these relationships that we battle unbelief. Okay, so quickly, so how do we do this? Listen to the question carefully. Okay, how do these three things, the word of God, prayer and fasting, and the church, how do these three things come together? on a daily basis in your life how do they come together on a daily basis in your life to fight unbelief kill other sins around it and grow you in holiness how does that work and i'll just give a quick description maybe something like that it's you daily meet with god in the word and in prayer you daily meet with with god in his word and prayer you you dive into the word you love the word of god and you fight unbelief you let you get into the word Daily, you memorize it and, and read it and meditate on it and think on it. You saturate yourself with God's Word. You live a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. You live a lifestyle of, of being in each other's lives. And, and see, we, this is why we can't have just superficial conversations or superficial relationships because we're in each other's lives to remind each other that's a lie. And here's the truth and promises of God's Word that kills your unbelief, brother, and raises up faith. So we're in each other's lives. We're in the word daily, regularly, in prayer, in fasting. You see that. We're in these meetings, these meetings, like Sunday meetings and meetings in, in small, smaller groups. You might meet in at somebody's home or something in each other's homes throughout the week. You're doing these things because this is where they all slam together. The word of God in prayer and the body of Christ. And we fight unbelief. Let me give you another question. Very similar. So how do these three things, word, prayer, and church, how do they come together in the heat of the battle? I mean, when the temptation is right in front of your face, whenever the desires for sin are right there on you in the heat of battle, what do you do? How do you employ the word, prayer, and fasting to protect you from unbelief and sin and to grow you in your faith? How do you do that? In the heat of the battle, you've got to identify your unbelief, just like we were doing those different sins earlier. Okay, anxiety, whatever it might be. You identify that unbelief and then you bring to memory like a flood the word of God that you know that kills those lies and raises up the truth. And you keep doing it and you preach the word of God to yourself and you say, well, I don't know any of my memory. This is war. The devil doesn't care you don't know it. 
So you take out your Bible and you do it that way, whatever you can. And you just flood your mind with the word of God and you cry out to God. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And you cry out to him to help you. This is war against sin. And you call a brother or you call a sister. You say, hey, man, this is what I'm dealing with. Help me kill lies. Give me a promise from God. Pray for me. You fight it in the heat of battle with the word, prayer, and the body of Christ. You fight, fight, fight. Last quick thing here I want to tell you. I want you to be aware of something, okay? So we're talking about an individual believer dealing with sin. Growing with Christ, growing in their faith. I want to let, the, let this be something we think about we as a church, us as a church, okay? Us as a church on the mission of God. We're on the mission of God, preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches here to the ends of the earth and unreached places. Think about that. Put that, that's the context. And here's what I want to tell you. Unbelief can hinder a mighty work of God. Not only should we fight unbelief because it's the root of all sin for an individual, but also we should fight unbelief because unbelief can hinder a mighty work of God. Matthew 13, 58. He did not do mighty works among them because of their unbelief. You see this in the scripture over and over again. Think about it. You read through the gospels. Jesus does a miraculous work and he always seems like always connects it to their faith. He says your faith has made you well. Over and over again. He does a miraculous work. He connects it to their faith. Not that Jesus needs our faith to do miraculous mighty works. He doesn't need us. But Jesus tends to do that on his own. That he wants to bring it together. People full of faith he uses to do mighty works of God. We must fight unbelief. Even when you get outside the gospel, Acts 6-8, listen to Stephen. Stephen, a man full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. What about Barnabas? God used Barnabas to win souls, make disciples, plant the church at Antioch. And listen to what it says about Barnabas in Acts 11-24. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. God doing mighty works among his people is so often connected to his people who believe him. Fight unbelief. Are, you on the, are we on the mission of God together? Amen. We're on the mission of God together to glorify his name to the ends of the earth. And, and he does mighty works through faith, not through unbelief. Let me give you two quick, an example in one verse, and then I'll close it down there, okay? Now here's my example. Now throw this out as a warning. I want you to think Exodus chapter 4, Moses. Don't you think about unbelief and what this means? God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and you're going to deliver my people out of Egypt. Moses starts saying stuff like this. I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech. Does that sound humble? Yeah, it sounds humble, right? He knows he's slow of speech. He knows he's not eloquent. And he's got that negative side of the coin, right? And it, but, but listen... God told him to go. Where's the confidence in God that, yes, I'm slow of speech, but you told me to do this, God. You told me, I know how powerful you are, and I believe you, Lord, that you would use me for your glory to take these people out of Egypt. Where was that at? And in the same way, I feel like we tend to do the same thing. So take this as a, as a, a sharpening tool for us all. Let me sharpen you. I think that we tend to be on that negative side of the coin, right? We can't do it by ourselves. We don't have the power. We can't. We can't. And that's true. And praise God that that's in you and in us. But what about this other side of it that says, I can't do it without your help, God. But I have your help. Because Hebrews 4.16 says I could come to the throne of grace to get grace and mercy to help in time of need. 
And Psalm 121 says, my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Where's that side of it, that confidence, that faith that runs to Jesus and reaches out for his clothes? If only I can touch him, I'll be made well. Where's that at? And I want to challenge us to be a people full of faith when it comes to the mission of God that we are on. Last one, let me give an example of a promise. There are multitudes of promises in this word that you need to pull out. And remember how you fight, right? How do you get that faith? How do you fight your unbelief? You preach these words to yourself. You, this is, don't be flippant with it. You just preach it. You, you, know, you do it day after day, knowing the word of God and in prayer and with the body of Christ. But then, but then even in, throughout the day or in certain moments of unbelief, you preach these words to yourself. I, I struggle with unbelief that I'm going to come up here and teach this word and it means nothing today. And so I fight it. You know how I fight it? I fight it with verses like this. John chapter 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I'll preach that to myself. And then when I don't believe it, I'll preach it again. And I don't believe it, I'll find another one. I'll preach that one to myself. But whatever I can to just flood my mind and my heart with these kind of promises and go to war against unbelief in the mission of God. We're people that have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And did God not say, did he not say that when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we will have power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? Did he not say that? Where is the confidence to believe in our God for that? Let me just end with this quote and then I'll pray. It's a quote from George Mueller. It's a man used by God to do great things for his glory. Here's the quote. Faith does not operate in the realm of possible. There's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. I agree. I say we end our power. We have no power and we believe on the Lord to use us for His glory among the nations. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank You. And I just ask You, God, I just want to bring before You again, God, any person here who's unbelieving, in your gospel. Any lost person here, God, that's headed toward hell or, or any person here, God, that's, that's, uh, that, that has this hidden unbelief, God, I just ask you to expose their hearts to themselves. Help them to see it, God. And I just ask you, Lord, that you would save their souls. I pray that you would do something in their life that nothing else would ever hold them back, that they would believe on you, Lord Jesus, and be saved. And God, I lift up every believer here, every child of yours, Lord, that you would make us a people, that you make Grace Community Church a group of people filled with faith in you, God, and that you just, just for your glory, just for your namesake, God, you would use us to do mighty works. God, we need your help. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.